Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. Hi, it's Saturday. This is a show. Therefore, this is the Saturday show of The Gist, where we bring you the best from the past, the recent past and the far-flung past. The interview from the vaults will be with Princeton professor Eddie Glaude, who wrote a book about James Baldwin, which I think is quite appropriate for Pride Month. It originally aired about two months ago, but sadly, not exactly two months ago. We missed Pride Month in 2020. It aired in August of 2020, but we're correcting the record and playing it for you now in June. And then I talked about Chuck Todd's contention. What would you think if all of this, the insurrection, the hearings, Donald Trump were playing out in another country? And my point was to talk about the humility I might have were I sitting in another country since other countries, pure countries of the United States, are often beset by political troubles. Now, a lot of people like that segment and told me they did, but a listener I have named Greg, Blind Greg, uh, said he did not. And Greg frequently writes in, we rejiggered MikePesca.com to make it more, or I hope just flat out compatible with uh, our blind listeners. And that was a Greg's suggestion. We thank him for that. Greg writes in every couple of weeks with a lot of scathing, scathing criticism. Like when I said the before Ukraine, or maybe it was just written in show notes, he accused me of playing into uh, Putin propaganda. He uh, said, you know, accused me of being too arrogant to uh, correct others, whereas I'm nitpicky with the mistakes of others. I will not admit it when I make my own mistakes. Yes, I did say the Ukraine, Greg. And then uh, a couple weeks later, he accused some spiel of being the worst ever and said this was the worst week of listening. He still writes in. And on this spiel where I talked about what if you were in another country, he strongly objected. He said the presence of assassinations elsewhere doesn't mean that America is not in a terrible shape. That's true. I said that. At one point in talking about countries that were avoiding most of these issues, I did make the point that they were mostly homogeneous countries like Ireland, Iceland, the Scandinavian countries. And he wrote in saying, what is the last time you've been to Ireland? They're hardly homogeneous. And I said, and I supplied him with statistics. Ireland's racial makeup is 94.3% white. I gave him immigration statistics because I'm quite cognizant that the influx of other people from the EU has dislocated Ireland society to an extent, but it's still 12.9% non-native born, less than the United States. He wrote back to me saying, it's so strange you think a homogeneous society is based only on skin color. I said, Greg, no, I don't. That's why I sent the nation of origin statistics. I further sent him evidence about how genetics companies move to Ireland because it's relatively homogeneous. I quoted him something from the Health Research Board of Ireland saying the Irish population is genetically relatively homogeneous, well suited for genetic research. It's fine. I think probably none of you will have these thoughts when you hear the piece. It was, I would say, nothing about Ireland's homogeneity. But you know, in case you are and you're like, well, that's a good piece, but he called Ireland homogeneous. It's not really. I wanted to lay out my thinking here. That's a lot of prologue. This was inspired by by Greg really not liking the piece. So I'd like to play it now so everyone and Greg could re-experience it in the context of knowing a little bit more about the homogeneity of Ireland. All right, enjoy.
Begin Again is the name of the new book by Princeton professor Eddie Glaude Jr. The subtitle is James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. And I have to say, and this comes through in this amazing new work, that the lessons for America certainly changed as of the conception and writing of the book. The America of Donald Trump smacked us all in the face. And what Eddie Glaude did was say, essentially, how did we get this wrong? How did I get this wrong? And the answer went back to, to some extent, I forgot what James Baldwin has been telling me all these years. Eddie Glaude, welcome to The Gist. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So after Trump was elected, and I want to talk a little bit about um, many of the policy prescriptions and voting prescriptions that you made before that election, did it smack you in the face or did it gradually dawn upon you that had you listened to Baldwin all along, you might not have been so surprised? I think more than anything, I would not have overestimated white America. I was of the view that it was utterly impossible that the country would elect someone so visibly unqualified to be the leader of the free world. And so I thought I had the space to do some work to try to break the back of a certain kind of corporate hole on the Democratic Party and some ways to break the silence that we we had experienced over the eight years with, with the Obama administration with regards to what was happening in black communities and the like. Like you said, if you know, I, I should have known better as a as a lifelong reader of Baldwin, that we were on the precipice of what I call in the book the aftertimes, or what some people will call a backlash. We were in the middle of it, and I should have known better. So as you went back and reflected on Baldwin, and you know, if I talked to you in 2008 or 2012 before you embarked on this project, how long would you have gone, for instance, since the last time you read James Baldwin? Oh, I just finished teaching a course. You know, I teach a seminar <laughs> of Baldwin like every year. I teach a seminar in his nonfiction, you know. So I've been walking with him for at least 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. So I read him regularly. So this is a re-examination and getting to really um, digest his works, but you're never that far from him. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. He's, he's a walking, I call him a walking partner. And you call him Jimmy and um, you never actually met him. He died in 87. You were, I think, an undergrad at Morehouse at the time. But here's my question. The fire next time and... You know, this comes out in 1963, and that's one James Baldwin. And then he moves from there, and maybe it's exaggerated. I don't think he repudiates himself like some of his uh, critics, and I mean that not in the pejorative sense, but people who've looked at him said, you know, the James Baldwin of The Fire Next Time and the James Baldwin of, you know, the 1970s were two different people. I think it's more of an evolution. But which one was the one that you would reflect on when you say something like, I'm, I, I had to remind myself not to forget the lessons of James Baldwin? Sometimes they were two different lessons. Well, you know, I mean, the wonderful thing about Baldwin is that, you know, teaching him over all these years is that there's a commonality of theme that runs from the younger Baldwin to the older Baldwin. He's just thinking about those themes under different material conditions. So what does it mean for the late Jimmy Baldwin to think or to say, right, that, you know, sometimes African-Americans just have to vote just to buy themselves some time. This is what he says in response to the 1980 election between Carter and, and Reagan, right? How is Baldwin responding to the country turning its back on the black freedom struggle after the assassination of Dr. King? What is he doing when the country doubles down on, on its ugliness with the election of Richard Nixon in 68? 
and the appeal to the forgotten American or the silent majority and the hard hat rebellion and da 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 da. And what is he seeing as this as these economic shifts happen? And then Ronald Reagan is on the horizon. And we must remember for most activists, Reagan was like for most black activists, Reagan was the equivalent of George Wallace. Right? I mean, he was that notorious among black activists during this period. For the country to elect him, of all people, represented you know, this, this clear shutting of the door. So for me, I'm reaching for, at least in Begin Again, I'm reaching for the late Jimmy, the Jimmy that people think is bitter. His rage has overrun everything. The one who, according to some critics, has lost a touch, has gone bad in the teeth. He's no longer attentive to his craft. He's, his aesthetic, his art has become subordinate to polemic and politics. I think all of that is wrong. And if we read him closely, we'll see that the very things that animated the early Jimmy, he's thinking about them under these conditions of betrayal. That's the shift. It's almost like the shift in the atmospherics, you know, the oxygen is still there, but suddenly the clouds come in. The thunder is happening, right? And it's raining cats and dogs. You see what I mean? That's where I tend to locate my own feet when it comes to uh, this book and when it comes to Bolt. He understood the interplay between culture and politics very well. Oh, absolutely. And in some ways, he, he took it even one step, uh, one step deeper, I think. Uh, he understood that our political world, our political lives, our social, political, and economic arrangements, the mess that they are, that the, the disastrous nature of them, are actually a reflection of the messiness of us, of each of us as individuals. Right? That, that, that the lies that we tell ourselves about who we are are then reflected in the lies that, that inform and shape our social arrangements. So there's this demand, uh, we might even describe it as a kind of Socratic dictum about the unexamined life isn't worth living. So there's this demand in Baldwin's work that we take an honest look at ourselves as a precondition to say anything about the country. If he was writing and thinking and working at a time when the gay rights movement was in full flourish, and by the end it had gotten bigger, but certainly not when he first met MLK, who had his own thoughts and writings about uh, gay rights, how would his professional life have been different, do you think? You know, that's fascinating. Baldwin is this amazingly courageous figure, you know, first of all. When I interviewed Angela Davis for the book, she, she said to me, you know, with a look of astonishment and amazement, you know, in so many ways, Eddie, Jimmy was all out there by himself. You know, the fact that his second book that followed up, Go Tell It on the Mountain, was Giovanni's Room, a book about love, same-sex love, right? And he would say, you know, you couldn't hold that over my head, I told you. You know, he was out in a, in a moment where being out literally invited danger. But at the same time, Baldwin was very skeptical of these categories that hemmed us in, that to define him as this queer black man, this gay black man, and that would become, right, the overarching uh, identity for him, he would chafe under such descriptions. And you see this, for example, in the last interview uh, and other conversations edited by Quincy Troop, when, he, when someone is trying to uh, interview him and trying to get him to, to identify with the gay liberation movement in a way that he doesn't feel comfortable with, and, and you can see him literally deconstructing the categories that limit our understanding of ourselves, right? So I think on the one level, on one level, he would have been freer to do even more work. But I think on another level, Mike, he, he would have in some ways 
being the critical poet that he was, he would want to show us how a certain understanding of sexuality could actually release the trap. What would James Baldwin have made of the Robin D'Angelo white fragility phenomenon? The phenomenon being <laughs> this is the number one bestseller and there is uh, among a certain substrata of the white population a desire to uh, confront one's own complicity. You know, I, don't, I, I never dare to, to try to put words in his mouth because there, there's 7,000 pages of his words. So, yeah. so, so I, don't, I don't try to try to anticipate what he would say. I know what I would say, right, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, D'Angelo is doing a great work with, with the book. But there's a, you know, it's a corporate strategy, right? It comes out of a particular world in which we're trying to manage difference in specific sorts of ways. When I used to read Jimmy with my friends in graduate school, he would make them uncomfortable. You know, there would be red cheeks, blushes, the ground felt scorched. Um, one one black friends or white friends? White friends. Uh huh. He and I would have to manage their uncomfortable uh, position, right? And so one asked one has to ask the question: Is white fragility making anybody uncomfortable? So I do want to now go back and remind my listeners of what your position was before last election, which is, <laughs> which is, and I saw this, I was just rewatching a debate I remember that you had with Michael Eric Dyson, and he was on the show to also talk about his uh, Jimmy Baldwin book, which is about this great meeting that he had with RFK, although maybe he didn't think it was so great. So Dyson's point was, you got to vote for Hillary Clinton because the lesser of the two evils is, of course, less evil. And your point was that you thought that people could strategically vote and reject the entire project that uh, the Clintons represented and Hillary herself embodied. So did you think you got that wrong? You know, looking back, um, yeah, in, in, in the sense that, as we said earlier, that, you know, I overestimated white America, and I hadn't quite concluded at the time that we were in a particular moment in the country, right, where people were doubling down on their ugly commitments in very, very clear ways. I was thinking that coming out of eight years of Obama, where we had to mute uh, issues of race in order to protect his flank, where we couldn't really hail the state in a particular sort of way, Remember, we lost a decade of gains. The whole 90s were wiped out for black America because of the Great Recession. And now that's been followed by, by you know, this global pandemic. So black America has been devastated in this moment, no matter how we talk about the unemployment numbers and the like. And so what I was thinking is that we have a chance to pull the Democratic Party to the left. Uh, we saw the energy of the Bernie campaign. I wasn't a Bernie Sanders I wasn't officially a Bernie Sanders supporter, but my, my strategy was let's pull the Democratic Party to the left. And I remember reacting viscerally to Mike's attempt to locate the Clinton candidacy with the best of the black freedom tradition. That bothered the hell out of me, that people were trying to draw a line from the bad story around Obama straight to Clinton as a way of mobilizing black voters. So in retrospect, we all, at least I didn't, recognize the existential threat that Donald Trump represented to the country and to black folk. Right. 
And so I saw you a couple uh, weeks ago, maybe it was longer than that, when you kind of called out Steve Schmidt on MSNBC because he kept going on about what an existential threat Donald Trump was, but then said, but I can't vote for Bernie Sanders. And your point, I think, quite trenchantly was, well, if he's this great threat, then how is it that he's not so much of a threat that Bernie Sanders couldn't earn your vote? And then I was retroactively applying that argument of Eddie Glaude 2019 (laughs) to Eddie Glaude 2016. But I think you did answer the question. It's not that you misunderestimated how terrible Trump would be if he were president. You misunderstood, and I think a lot of us did, the chances of him actually becoming president. Absolutely. And see, the thing is that people are putting this on the shoulders of working class, high school educated white men. And, and when you look at the data, that's not, it's not just them. College educated suburban white women, white men. I mean, he won, in effect, the white vote, right? Um, yeah. When we look, when we break down the no, numbers, right? Not, quite clearly. White, yeah. Quite Overwhelmingly. clearly. Overwhelmingly. Overwhelming. Yeah. And so you kind of say, well, wait a minute, right? So what's going on here? And, and when I started, when I looked at the exit poll data and, and I said, oh my goodness, there's some folks here who um, in the midst of, of all that has happened and is happening, there's some folk who really are invested in this idea of, of America being a white nation. And it cuts across class, it cuts across education and status, and it intersects with abject greed. Because that's Trump's sweet spot. He appeals to racist and he appeals to people's self-interest and greed. Yeah, when I look back upon it, I would have made a different decision, I think. Although I'm still convinced that we cannot have black people be a captured electorate. We gotta figure out how to engage this process without political parties and politicians treating black voters like cattle chewing cud. Right, and I'm sympathetic Uh, Probably more than sympathetic. It's actually in my uh, interests for black people not to be a captured electorate. And yet I say to myself, if one party is just going to plant a flag in the ground and say uh, our entire modus operandi is to be a white party, an anti-black party, and we are a two-party system, which we seem to be, then what choice do black people have? I mean, it's putting black people in a horrible position to both be able to say we want to be respected and courted, courted for our votes, but at the same time, of course we could never throw our lot in with one of the two parties in the United States. Well, where does that leave us? It leaves us with Democrats triangulating, creating policies that will devastate the working, you know, black working class and black working poor. You think about, you know, so-called welfare reform in the Clinton years and what it did to black communities, how it deepened those who, who fell into extreme poverty. You think about the expansion of the criminal code where you can damn near sneeze in this country and break a law as people were kind of racing to the bottom to show that they were tough on crime and how Democrats in so many ways, as my colleague Naomi Mirakawa writes in in her book, The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built Prison America, right? How Democrats contributed in building, uh, you know, putting in place the infrastructure for mass incarceration in this country, right? So what what do we do, right? What is revealed in that moment? Because you're right, you got these folk who have planted the, their flag on white supremacy, and you got these other folk who are saying, well, black folk, you know you really can't go over to them, so we can continue to do what we want to do, which might necessarily not be in your interest. But we're the lesser of two evils. 
So at that point, you got to really ask yourself some difficult questions. What do you do? And then that's when Baldwin's insights that sometimes you vote to buy yourself some time. Sometimes you say to hell with all both of you. Sometimes you, you turn your attention to the local and state arenas, right? But the one thing you cannot do is let the white folk who are in, or I shouldn't just say white folk, Mike, to let the leaders of the Democratic Party off the damn hook. We can't do that. Do you have uh, hopes, optimism? I know Nyberg talked about both of those, but do you have, <laughs> what are your thoughts about a Biden presidency? Well, you know, we got to walk and chew gum at the same time. We got to get Donald Trump out of office and we, got, we cannot go back to, to, we cannot allow uh, an idea of normalcy, a return to normalcy, arrest our imaginations. The country is broken. I mean, it's clear. Um, it's broken. And, you know, I'm reminded of King's speech uh, in Montgomery after the Selma March in 65. And he says, you know, he says, people are clamoring for us to get back to normal. And then he says, let me tell you what was normal. And then he starts listing all of the murders, all of the violence, right, of the, that moment that people call normal, right? So we're not going back to normal because what was normal was broken. So we have to push for a radical reimagining of this place because American democracy will not survive right, if we think that the only thing we need to do is to go back to what we were doing before Donald Trump. Eddie Glaude is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, and his new book is called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Thank you so much, Eddie. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you, man. And now the spiel. When you've just witnessed a stew of mendacity, bravery, peril, and insidiousness, there are few words to encapsulate all of it. So many, many pundits reacting to the proceedings of the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol chose one very common but powerful word powerful testimony. I think that makes it much, much more powerful. I think a very powerful moment. I did think that was powerful, seeing Ivanka's face up there. I could have played a Chuck Todd-only montage of six powerfuls in 90 seconds, but you know what? I'm going to tease that until the end. That's why you'll stay. There, what I just played, you heard Jessica Tarlov of Fox, Nora O'Donnell of CBS, and two ABC voices who I will play a little more of just to give you some sense of what exactly it was they thought was powerful. First off, Jonathan Carl. Well, I, I thought that really the, the powerful moment, I mean, there were, there were many of them, but to hear uh, Bill Barr say in such blunt, blunt terms that there was nothing to the allegations of fraud in the election, that he had directly told that uh, to, to President Trump, and then to hear Ivanka Trump say that she respects Bill Barr and that she accepted what he had to say, uh, I, I think a very powerful moment. Indeed, Bill Barr is saying under oath what he said in his book, that he advised the president that there was no election fraud, does go to the very difficult task of establishing that Trump knowingly advanced charges of fraud when there wasn't any fraud, the mens rea aspect of establishing state of mind. I do think Ivanka Trump's tape was not so, what is the word, powerful. Her saying, I respect Attorney General Barr, so I accepted what he was saying. Accepted as true, accepted that that was the guy's opinion, accepted as one of many acceptable points of view. 
Acceptance, like the tactics of the former attorney general, a low bar. Chris Christie was one of the few Republicans represented on CNN, MSNBC, or any of the networks. And indeed, he offered useful analysis about what might land with a Republican who doesn't believe the election was stolen, but isn't necessarily a never-Trumper. There's no evidence of fraud. There's no evidence that this election was stolen. And, and I think, you know, it's one thing to hear it for Republicans, to hear it from Democrats, but to hear it not only from Republicans, but from the people who ran the president's campaign, the people closest to him in the White House and his own family. I think that makes it much, much more powerful for Republicans and Republican-leaning independents to hear those things, David. And so we'll see what goes on from here. But those are some very powerful words from people who were part of the Trump administration. If you wanted to find other conservative voices, Fox shunted them off their main channel to their business channel. Former Fox host Chris Wallace was a panelist on CNN. I agree with his assessment, which begins with the requisite adjective. Well... We'd seen videos before. Uh, I remember that the impeachment uh, House impeachment managers put together a very powerful video before the second Senate trial. Uh, but this does not lose its capacity to shock and to disgust you and to horrify you. The idea of this mob coming to the to the symbol, as it was called, the citadel of our democracy breaching the walls and going in and attacking, talking about uh, hang Mike Pence, uh, hunting for Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. And, you know, there was also some, you, you look back at some of the things that were said, uh, Benny Thompson, the chairman, this was a sprawling, multi-step conspiracy to overturn the election, and Donald Trump was at the center of the conspiracy. Uh, Liz Cheney, those who invaded the Capitol, were motivated by what Trump told them. Trump lit the fuse for the attack. It was a, a, a very powerful, very well-produced, if you will, two-hour presentation. I still have questions. I, if you were horrified by the events of January 6th and what we've learned since, you were certainly horrified by what you saw. Uh, if you haven't been convinced of that in the last year and a half, I'm not sure if this or anything will change your mind. Of course, if you weren't convinced, it might be because you don't get your news from CNN or any of the other networks. The Fox News Channel, as we said, played their usual primetime fare, but over on Newsmax, whoa boy, they made a big deal of airing the hearing, unlike Fox, because they're such great journalists, but during testimony, they invited on guests like Alan Dershowitz to say, this spectacle is a sham, only Newsmax viewers literally couldn't be spectators because guests and hosts were yammering it up during the hearing. Here's Newsmax anchor Rob Schmidt afterwards. So many critical details were not shown tonight. That was the design of this. That's why we just did the last two hours. And I know a lot of people probably didn't want to see that hearing on Newsmax, but we are a news organization. We are going to do the news and that's why we did it. And we gave you the other side. We gave you the cross-examination that you aren't going to get anywhere else. You're just not. Trust there will be no hearing though into how this administration got inflation so wrong, a problem that's affecting every single American in this country. There will be no hearings into the summer of 2020 and what their rhetoric created two years ago, the mayhem that we saw then. Let's cue the videotape. Let's not. There are a lot of things that weren't selected by the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, like everything other than that. It wouldn't be surprising that they didn't get into inflation, orcas at SeaWorld, or the whole Felicia Sanmez sitch. 
Newsmax coverage was pretty much blown coverage, uh, fiction in a way, uh, total inaccuracy. Eh, I'll let you decide. Schmidt here interviewing Trump lawyer Alina Haba. They didn't mention they didn't mention um, Brian Sicknick, Officer Brian Sicknick. Um, but they didn't they didn't mention the young lady that was killed either, the former Air Force no. veteran. They didn't mention her, of course. They did not mention Brian Sicknick, who the media and Democrats spent months after the attack telling Americans died after being attacked by by insurrectionists inside the building. And then we learned, you know, months after that, that, oh, he had a stroke. Um, they still tried to carry that rhetoric for a long time. They didn't mention him tonight. At least I, I didn't hear it. And our producing team didn't hear it. Obviously, there's a lot going on here. But I thought it was very interesting to leave him out. That's a big mea culpa right there. That, but that's the country we live in now. Everybody has to do their own research. So I did deep, rigorous research of actually watching the hearing. The family of Officer Sicknick as well, who's here tonight. That was Liz Cheney. I was holding that line for a while. There weren't many of us over there. Um, and Officer Sicknick was behind me. And that was Officer Carolyn Edwards, who was attacked, concussed, and got back up to fight the mob again. Her description of what she endured and what happened to Officer Sicknick was unforgettable, provided you bothered to pay attention. And I turned, and it was Officer Sicknick with his head in his hands. And he was ghostly pale. Um, which I, I figured at that point that he had been sprayed and I was um, concerned. My, uh, you know, cop, cop alarm bells went off um, because if you get sprayed with pepper spray, you're going to turn red. He turned um, just about as pale as this sheet of paper. That. That right there, that was what made the hearing so, you guessed it, powerful. The footage, the testimony, the facts are inherently compelling. Some credited the great production value. That surpassed my expectations, I have to say, just as, a, as an argument, as a story, as a piece of television programming, as someone who makes television for a living, that surpassed my expectations. Chris Hayes' MSNBC colleague Joy Reid said the images were so harrowing, she concluded that riot was an insufficient word to describe what she was seeing. This was a war being made upon the United States by the president of the United States. I don't feel we need to hyperbolize this sufficiently calamitous event. And I also agreed with Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour. It was compelling, but the format didn't exactly transcend the genre of congressional hearing. This was a very methodical hearing. I wasn't sure how much Hollywood we were going to get in this kind of hearing. We'd heard a lot about the production value of it, but there still was a very methodical and kind of slow pace. For that reason, and the reason of general media siloing, I don't think we'll see massive polling shifts on the generic congressional ballot after this hearing. I don't think many elected Republicans will newly break ranks. I do think the hearing, A, tried very hard to erase the Trump state of mind defense, but I don't think it totally worked, at least if what they showed us was the most damning evidence they have. It is a frustration that we had a president so addled that he could legitimately claim, duh, I really thought the election was stolen. And even if his advisors contradicted him, as we were shown, they did, might not be enough to establish mens rea. 
I do think the committee did, however, go far in making real villains out of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, rather than allowing those groups to be regarded as something like goofy LARPers. Henceforth, the first association upon hearing the name Proud Boys made just shift from ridiculous to dangerous. But because of our politics and our populace, I have to say the walls cannot be said to be closing in. But the animals contained within those walls seem even more beastly than they did yesterday. And that's it for this week's show that just was produced by Corey Wara and Joel Patterson and inspired by Greg. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. She also is a very nice person, according to Greg, and a very patient liaison to all of our listeners who wish to write in via email at mikepesca.com. Now newly accessible to all. Talk to you Monday. They certainly made it very powerful, what I'd call an opening statement. Powerful, powerful, powerful first hour. The most powerful opening we've had of the three. And I think those other two were pretty powerful.